0: Welcome back to, drum roll please, the acts in politics. Yeah, that's right. So, after much deliberation, we finally got a name for our podcast.
1: Finally!
0: Yeah. Um, And we've gotten a a few other changes too. But first, you know, I'm Lucas Rodriguez, joined here by Kayla Guillory and and Ruri Ariadikana. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Hi. How's it going? What's
0: up? we're Doing well. All right. Um, Do you guys want to fill them in on our new changes? Yeah, sure. So, we've gotten some feedback
2: from our listeners and we decided to make our podcast more casual and less scripted. Uh, It was going to go one of two ways. We were either going to make it more scripted or less scripted, and we decided to go with the latter. And so now this week, starting this week, we're going to have a list of topics that we'll go through and chat about, and then we'll move on to our regular interview or panel.
1: Yeah, and we're basically here to give you guys the news and also give you a few interesting perspectives on the news. So that's news that's going around campus as well as national news. The
0: Axe. and.
2: there you
1: go the name fits right
0: yeah uh so let's get right to it then uh i think the biggest thing that happened on campus this week was the pending decision of the university to um retract administrative and financial support from fulman on the quad
1: right thoughts right i mean that's a and that's a big topic because i think that one of the biggest things that happened was, you know, the review and their article as well as petition sort of set off this snowstorm of, of backlash and people were mad. And, and I think it's these, you know, these... Well, this time
2: people support what the review... Right. Petitioned. Yeah, mad <laughs> at the university.
0: <laughs>
1: kind of a 180. Um, but it's, it's these like titles, you know, that the university isn't taking it away and they're not going to have it anymore. And
0: they're like... not taking into account students' perspectives. It's a, yeah. it's a whole thing. But you... I mean, you kind of have to see where the university is coming from, right? The The event, fooling on the Quad, to some extent, does promote, you know, both drinking and actual participation in the event, which shouldn't be forced. And that's something that the university just really doesn't want to be affiliated with.
2: Well, like Greg Boardman, I think that's his name, wrote in the Stanford Daily...
0: He's uh, the today, vice provost for student affairs. Yeah.
2: He wrote, it creates an unnecessary social pressure that he would like the Stanford students to come up with a new tradition that...
0: Yeah, but that's the thing, like, is, like, is Full Moon really, like, replaceable by a new tradition? It's so unique, so weird, so Stanford, like, I, I, it's not very replaceable.
2: Right,
1: and I think, I think some points you were also making earlier, Lucas, were just about the, you know, will the administration dropping financial support mean that you're gonna create a bigger problem, almost, because... You know, people are gonna. Are people still gonna celebrate us? People still yeah, gonna try and have sure. full moon on yeah. the quad?
0: right? Yeah, no, I. Yeah, no. The way I see it is, full moon's gonna happen regardless of university support or not. And next year, if you don't have the university support, then you're not gonna have the finances to get sober monitors. You know, policemen, firemen, an ambulance if need be, um, shipwreck. You know, the the Office of Alcohol and Education Policy, like all these people that help make full moon safer and and better. Are not going to be there at this not university-sanctioned full moon off the quad, full so moon to speak. Off the quad, right. um, and so it, it could be a recipe for disaster. And that's why I, you know, I think we should we should look for ways to make full moon safer within this existing framework.
2: Yeah, and I think this is going to stay a topic of controversy for a couple of weeks at least. It's going to make the ballot. It got enough signatures already. So I think we should move on. I, is there any other Stanford news this week or? I do
1: not think so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, let's let's go on to um, some national news. The Oscars yeah. happened on Sunday, right? Yes, uh the you know, it was a it was a highly anticipated Oscars because it was Oscars are so white. You Hashtag
1: know. Oscars so white. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So no black nominees in any of the real major categories. And Chris Rock, you know, came came out guns and blazing in that opening monologue.
1: He really did. I don't know. I was I was with him at some points, and I was like, yes, Chris, you're so funny. And then there are other points where I was like, no, Chris, what are you doing? You know, in his statement about um, about we, you know, some Americans have, quote, not, not necessarily a quote, but some Americans have better things to do or we don't have better things to do than um, talk about how the Oscars are so white, I was, I was a little irked by that. I don't know if I was the only one.
2: Yeah, and the lynching joke, I know. Wasn't well received by many people.
0: Yeah, and then there's that that, that pretty, pretty frankly racist joke about the Asian American. Oh, that was later in the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: throughout the show, there were some really, some really odd parts that fell flat. Fell pretty flat.
1: Oh yeah. And speaking of odd parts that fell flat, I mean, can we talk about Stacey Dash? What What are you doing, Stacey? Why? The the I cannot wait to help my people out. Happy Black History Month. Did not. Did not fire on all cylinders, I think, for anybody in the audience.
0: Yeah, no. Safe to say, it was not really did not really go how many expect how many people were expecting it to. Mm -hmm. And you know, in other sort of diversity in television, diversity in Hollywood related news, what what happened with Melissa Harris Perry this week? Uh, She walks off her her show on MSNBC that she's the anchor of. Like, what's up?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, MSNBC and Melissa Harris Perry have apparently had this problem for a couple weeks now. Or even longer, where she felt that she was being forced out by them. They've been preempting her show with coverage of the twenty sixteen presidential election, and
0: yeah, she feels left now, out. She feels ignored.
2: Yeah, and now this week, uh, she she didn't sign her contract extension, so she's she's no longer with MSNBC.
1: Right. I mean, which makes sense. I mean, you know, when you. And I think we've seen this before, I think um, she has kind of come out and said that this is what they do to people, especially minorities who, on MSNBC, they kind of phase them out and it's just crazy, right? I mean, especially from such a, I want to say, liberal-leaning... liberal, le- yeah, no. liberal leaning yeah,
2: it's it's Left Fox coverage. News. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly.
1: And it just makes you wonder why in the world they would want to do this um, to, yeah. to her. And you know from what I've seen her show is her show is popular. I mean people like it it's it's a good
2: she brings a unique perspective she as a professor of political science uh, she's an educator, a writer right I, I think I think it's going to be very interesting to see where she goes next and how this affects MSNBC as a company
1: yeah,
0: crazy stuff, but uh, let's move on so in other national news this week, um, something pretty crazy happened. Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence he Thomas. is the of, Yeah. After, <laughs> what,
1: 10 years? Yeah.
0: So the last, so to give you guys some context, Justice Clarence Thomas, the last time he asked a question in oral arguments in the Supreme Court was February 26, 2006. Oh, like Kayla geez. said, that's like over 10 years ago now.
1: That's like exactly t- that's, that's uh, yeah. 10. That's
0: chilling. 10 years. Yeah. Um, oh. So, yeah. So, February 29th, just this past week, Supreme Court's hearing this case on actually regarding the Second Amendment is pretty interesting. And Clarence Thomas finally comes out and asks a question. And the context of the question I think is worth discussing. So the case surrounds a federal law that you know bans anyone convicted of a domestic violence co- crime from ever owning a handgun. And the person sort of in question, their crime, although domestic violence crime, is actually a misdemeanor as well. So Thomas's question to the US's attorney who's defending the law is simply, you know, this person's committed a misdemeanor. And so what you're saying is that being convicted of a misdemeanor leads to the loss of a constitutional right. And he asks, can you give me an example of any other example where conviction of a misdemeanor has led to the loss of a constitutional right?
2: And uh, I find this like whole argument a little confusing because I know misdemeanors are different from felonies. But the idea of a constitutional right being able to be taken away or not. And I think it falls on partisan lines when it comes to other issues, like people convicted of felonies lose their right to vote in many states. And I think uh, I think liberals hate that, and Republicans support that. But when it comes to gun ownership, liberals say, well, no, they shouldn't be able to have guns, and uh, yeah, Republicans support it. Yep. Yeah. And so it's not really a question of the Constitution, but more about what policies we support.
1: Well, I think that's why that's why the fact that this has to do with gun violence is so interesting because it's just, it's sort of revealing that, you know, it's revealing exactly what you said. Who is supporting what Clarence Thomas is saying and who is against what he's saying is, is really important to look at here because it shows that, that, who you know, who might or may not be sort of being a hypocrite in this case because, you know, if you are saying that being convicted of a crime means you should never have your, you know, fundamental constitutional rights taken away, then, you know, everybody sort of needs to look at their broad feelings about a lot of issues and make sure they're being consistent.
0: No, yeah, I agree. But I just, you know, it's not fair to pin this on Thomas, right? He's taking the specific case of misdemeanor, which is, you know, very specific to this case. And it does, you know, enlighten us on this larger conversation about being convicted of a crime than taking away a constitutional right but again that argument about felony disenfranchisement doesn't really apply to this very particular case that thomas was trying to address
1: right and he still makes some like great points yeah yeah yeah,
0: of course um yeah and you know in other scotus news this week scotus supreme court of the united states um they heard oral arguments for the whole woman's health versus hellerstedt case and this this is a big case for you guys that don't know about it it's poised to be the biggest abortion case since roe v wade it's basically challenging a texas state law that severely restricts where women can get abortion. So basically, abortion facilities that deliver abortion have to kind of essentially be mini hospitals, which is very expensive, and would shut down a lot of existing abortion facilities. And then people delivering the abortions have to have admitting privileges to hospitals, which a large number of doctors and you know professionals, like I said, that's not really medically necessary for an abortion. So it's going to be interesting to see where that case goes. Just want to. Throw that out there. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's really important.
0: And now
2: we've just got a few minutes left before getting to our panel, but I think we should talk about the 2016 presidential election. Our panel this week is on Donald Trump, so we'll try not to talk too much about him, but there's other news about other candidates.
1: Surprisingly. <laughs> Who knew?
2: Um, so what about Bernie Sanders this week?
0: Yeah, Bernie's uh, struggling to stay afloat. He, <laughs> uh, he wins four states in the Democratic primaries on Tuesday. And, you know, that may seem like a lot, but Hillary won six. She won so seven. many more. Oh, seven. Yeah, seven. sorry. Yeah. Seven. And, uh, and she won so many more, like, delegates. She's basically got the nomination locked up. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the Bernie Sanders campaign does because this political revolution kind of needs to shift gears right now. Um, Sanders and his team have really based their whole campaign around his call for a political revolution. And I actually... Right.
2: Yeah, you wrote an article. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, yeah, I mean... I'll, Check that out.
1: Uh, yeah,
0: I will shamelessly plug that right now. Uh, to go to stanfordpolitics.com and read my article, Revolution Meets Reality. Um, I wrote about how Sanders' political revolution isn't really feasible right now because he does not have a large number of congressmen behind him. And a lot of the transformative change that he wants would have to come through legislation that goes through Congress, obviously. So
2: does the revolution even need Bernie Sanders?
0: So that's what's really interesting about this whole thing is that, especially now, that's what I'm interested to see is Sanders' campaign is probably going to end pretty soon, I think it's fair to say, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got to, right? Yeah,
0: and so the revolution Mm -hmm. doesn't have to end when Sanders' campaign ends because if he can get sort of democratic socialists like him running on his platform at different levels of government, especially in House races and Senate races, Mm this revolution could live on and this constituency that he's really fired up could still have a place in the American electorate.
2: And that would probably help Hillary Clinton in the general election, too. Mm-hmm. If you can get those people to turn out to vote for their senators and congressmen, they'll probably also vote for Hillary at the top yeah, of the list. And,
1: and, and he's pushed Hillary. He's been pushing Hillary to talk about some of these like issues that people mm-hmm. are really yeah. about. And yeah. You know, that's, that's where you get people interested.
2: And now with the Republican Party. yes. So Donald Trump is our main story tonight. For the panel, but what happened? What happened last night at the right.
0: debate? Then. Yeah, so the debate got you know it was it was relatively uneventful until the very end, where the moderators asked Kasich, Cruz, Rubio, and it, Trump, and Trump, and but um, but it was about Trump, but, but, but it was there? about. So they say you know <laughs> if Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, will you support him and will you endorse him? They asked these three candidates, and all, and three? all three of them Kasich, Rubio, Cruz say. I will support whoever the party's eventual nominee is.
2: Which is likely going to be Trump. And I I found that pretty surprising considering Marco Rubio on Tuesday, Tuesday night after Donald Trump had a great night on Super Tuesday, he said the nomination of Donald Trump would be the end of the modern conservative movement and the end of the modern Republican Party in a devastating way. And now, now he's saying he'd be willing to support Trump if he gets the nomination. It's it's far from the mm-hmm. hashtag never Trump that people right yeah yeah you're, you're absolutely
1: right I think I think you know there's this element of like hypocrisy that we're seeing and you know what and and you know when you consider the other answers they could have made I mean there's yes unless it's Trump you know like they, uh, something they've almost been saying since the beginning but I think the other funny thing that happened this week that you know we want to mention is. Um, is the endorsement of Trump by Chris Christie.
2: What was it, like two weeks ago he was a
1: presidential candidate himself? Mm -hmm. No, I mean these these
0: guys seem to be falling in line behind Christie at this point. And
1: it's, I mean, the funniest thing that happened was, if um, you missed it, Christie just looked like he was being held hostage behind Donald Trump during his victory speech on Super Tuesday, and there's been a lot of coverage of it, but I mean... He even
2: said at a press conference, I think it was, "Uh, no, I was not being (laughs) held hostage. Which
1: is so funny that it needs clarification.
2: Yes, but I yeah, think... It's, uh,
0: it's fascinating how the Republican establishment is, is, is slowly but surely falling in line behind, behind Donald Trump.
2: Yes, and so now I think it's a good transition to go into our panel.
0: Yeah, let's get to it. Let's
1: do it, yeah.
2: Well, in the studio today, we have Professor Bruce Kane, political scientist and director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West. We have Ryan Matsumoto, president of the Stanford College Republicans. And we have our very own Jake Dow, staff writer for the Stanford Political Journal. Thank you all for joining us. Today we've got you all here to discuss the state of the Republican Party, and specifically their current nomination's front runner, Donald Trump. To begin, I'd like to ask you, Ryan, as a college Republican, do you or does anyone you know actually support Donald Trump?
3: Uh, So we do have a few um, people uh, who come to our events who do support Trump. Uh, We've actually done uh, some uh, straw polls at each of our Um, each of our debate-watching parties and Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary parties. And it seems like Trump support is in the high teens. Um, Rubio seems to win every single time, but uh, there are some Trump supporters.
4: I think one of the interesting things that I've seen in the polling data is that some of the early profiles of Trump supporters were an exaggeration. And in particular, the notion that it was all white white working class males uh, seems to have been a stereotype that has uh, either been exploded or has changed over time. And for for example, the Washington Post did a, a poll of uh, people coming out of the Virginia primary. And it turns out that Trump is actually, first of all, getting support from evangelicals. And we've seen that in other states. But then, I think to greater surprise, a number of college-educated, uh, people in the middle class who are either angry with the system or feel that the system is jammed up uh, and are supporting Trump because he seems to have uh, you know, an anti-establishment point of view. He seems to be strong enough to stand up to even the Republican Party on certain issues, although it's not clear how long he stands up to them. For example, on the mandate issue, with mm-hmm. respect to health care, he initially said, well, I'm in favor of mandates, but apparently in the last day or so, He's come up with a health plan that gets away with them. So there seems to be some change going on right now within the Republican ranks where certain establishment Republican figures are uh, saying coming out, not just Christie, but a few others coming out and saying that they're in favor of Donald Trump. So we may be in a transition period over the next few weeks, uh, particularly after uh, the March 15th and where we see that profile expanding.
5: Yeah, so I would kind of split the Republicans I know into two categories as far as it relates to Trump. The first one, um, definitely the never Trump um, kind of category that's emerged recently. Um, The editor-in-chief of the, the former editor-in-chief of the Stanford Political Journal and I have had some discussions about this. He's on the never Trump bandwagon. A lot of them, and they're more mainstream conservatives, have, uh, have expressed their thoughts pretty clearly about Donald Trump. The second group, I actually don't know anyone personally who favors him, but a lot of them, especially the ones that were initial supporters of Rubio and initial supporters of Cruz, not the kind of latecomers to Rubio that emerged once uh, Bush dropped out, are kind of, they're respectful of Trump and they like him. He kind of expresses their kind of political id, but they just don't want him to be president. They just don't want him to be the commander-in-chief, but they don't totally disagree with a lot of the stuff that he's proposing.
2: Now, Jake, you mentioned the Never Trump movement. So Ryan, as the only Republican on the panel, is it conceivable that you or your contemporaries who now seek to distance themselves from Donald Trump may see yourself voting for him in a general election, should he be the nominee? Or will you abstain or even vote for Hillary Clinton?
3: Yeah, so personally, I don't see myself supporting uh, Donald Trump in the general election. Um, and I sense that a lot of people in the college Republicans um, also are sort of in the never Trump uh, uh, camp and that a lot of them just really don't want him and would either vote for Hillary Clinton or abstain from voting. Um, And there's actually some poll out from CNN that said that um, about 50% of non-Trump voters would not vote for him in the general election. So I think that could be a big liability for him. The big question is whether or not he sort of shifts his views and how he projects himself in the general election. I think if it was him versus Hillary today, he would lose in the landslide. But um, if he somehow um, was able to shift more to the center and sort of get away from a lot of his very controversial statements that helped him get uh, notoriety, then I could see him being a surprisingly strong uh, general election candidate.
4: Yeah, I, I uh, I think you're right about that. And I think that I would make a prediction right now hopefully the podcast isn't going to be listened to by lots of people, but I'm going to make a prediction. And that is that uh, I bet at least 80% of Republicans, registered Republicans, would support Trump. And I, it could w- well rise to 90% because I think he will do exactly what you said. I think he will. We've already seen it. As he gets more confident of getting the nomination, uh, I think he will track down back to the middle uh, to some extent. Um uh, That still leaves him way out on the extreme on some issues like building the fence. I don't think he can backtrack on that one. I think he's Mm -hmm. stuck with that one. I think the Muslim ban, he's going to have a hard time backtracking on because it turns out a surprisingly large number of Republicans are in favor of the Muslim ban. So, uh, you know, I think there will be certain positions he'll uh, track back on, but... uh, Interestingly enough, you know, uh, on property rights, uh, you know, eminent domain, things like mm-hmm. that, he seems to have a very strong view on. But I, I think the backtracking will happen, and uh, again, my prediction is at least eighty percent of Republicans will support him.
5: Yeah, and I think like just echo- echoing what um, what Bruce had to say there. But as it relates to politicians, I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, if if Trump's really this, I mean, he he seems like he's. I mean, he is controlling the the Republican race right now. There is a lot of power to be had if you are early, an early supporter of the of a future Trump president. I mean, I think that's what Chris Christie is doing. I think that's what um, Paul LePage, from uh, Governor of Maine, is doing. Is that I mean, there's certainly going to be a number of people. There was Senator Ben Sasse from Nebraska that came out as a as a vehemently anti-Trump guy. But I think politicians. I mean. They're gonna they're gonna move to where they they are able to um, project the most power from, and I think in the future of the Republican Party, right now at least, there's a there's a big opportunity to be allied with these like Trumpian forces. So I think um, we shouldn't uh, overestimate the kind of moral consciousness of politicians as it relates to a rising star within their own party.
2: So you mentioned some of the politicians who have endorsed Donald Trump. Chris Christie infamously joined his team last week. Do you think that the Republican establishment is starting to realize that they've completely misjudged who their voters are, and that they might try to reconcile this by getting behind Trump?
5: So what's ironic to me is, in, in addressing your point, so immediately after the 2012 election, the RNC basically did a, did a study of why they lost, and they issued the famous autopsy report that said they needed to move themselves to the center on immigration, and they needed to appeal to young voters, Latino voters, in order to win the general election. And we've seen the maximum literal opposite of that in the Donald Trump candidacy. And so what I think is important there, and I think um, this is something that David Frum has talked about a lot, is that I don't think the GOP elites in doing that autopsy really listened to what the voters want. The the The, the establishment wanted to centralize themselves kind of on the immigration issue, but clearly based on the success of the Donald Trump campaign, The voters were not there. They wanted to go in the opposite direction. So I think that's an example of the disconnect that you're talking about between party leaders
4: and their base. Yeah, and that disconnect actually uh, is not simply something that we're seeing in the United States. That's exactly what's going on in Europe. Uh, We're going to see Merkel. We're going to see in France, Mm -hmm. uh, Hollande. We're going to see Popular Front, populist, anti-immigrant groups uh, Mm -hmm. rising and challenging elites. And I think there's a a bigger deeper issue here about the global economy and the displacement effects of that but also something that Stanford is really central to which is the emergence of uh, cyber uh, communications Mm -hmm. and the evolution of cyber communications because what it does in a way that I don't think we completely appreciated until this election is it really uh, creates the possibility for plebiscitary uh, candidacy and plebiscitary democracy enabled now by new technology. And Trump's basically gotten to where he has by two things. One, his celebrity status. Well, we've seen that already mm-hmm. in California with uh, Arnold and uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's now at a different level because it's also just as celebrities communicate with you guys through Twitter uh, and uh, you know, instant messaging and all this kind of stuff, that's essentially what Donald Trump has done. He has yeah. not built a conventional campaign with consultants and mm-hmm. uh, built on uh, paid media. He is he has seen earlier than I think a lot of candidates on both the Democratic and Republican side that know the ability to use Twitter to talk to voters directly is unleashing these, these populist uh, sentiments that are there, for better or for worse. And I think it really raises some substantial questions that you guys probably know a lot about because you you've seen... Uh, cyberbullying, you've yeah. seen uh, the unleashing of a kind of hate speech that goes on in uh, a lot of social media and there is a kind of uh, you know, I don't know it's sort of emboldening uh aspect of social media that gets people to say things that they wouldn't otherwise say in polite company. So I'd be interested Mm -hmm. in how you react to that, but that's my kind of thesis about what's going on here. So Trump
5: learned early on, there's been a lot of reporting about his book, The Art of the Deal, and then he understands that the, the new political currency is airtime. It used to be money, now it's airtime. He's not really spending that much money, but he's getting free remarkable media coverage because of his outlandish statements. And so all, all these other candidates up until recently were uh, like kinda operating in this past paradigm where it's money, it's 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 advertising. It's not this free media airtime that you can generate. And I think that's the um the reasoning behind this shift in the Marco Rubio strategy in the last week and a half. Is he start uh, kind of stooped down to Trump's level in terms of bathroom humor and crude jokes and, and all those things. And it worked for him. All of a sudden they started covering Rubio to the same extent that they were covering Trump. There was a uh, a, a period in the news cycle where Rubio is the prominent figure. And so I think he's discovering, just like Trump did, that you can, through the kind of your, the choices you make in your rhetoric and the extent to which you're willing to be provocative, take control of the media and that's far more powerful in this age of history. So here's the question I have
4: for you guys. Yeah. is is it possible to counter that with something that doesn't descend into the gutter? Is it possible to use social media, but, have it more fact based, have it somehow check uh, this this kind of really juvenile discussion. Mm-hmm. Or once you get in on the juvenile track, is it your experience that there's no way you can get out of it? It's like a prisoner's dilemma game that goes to the bottom. Is that what's going on? you think?
3: Uh, I think it is like kind of hard to sort of rise above like some of the Trump tactics of uh, like saying ridiculous things to get attention. Um, just in terms of like um can, are, are you able to just talk about policy, talk about, the results you've had from governing, I think it's a lot harder to make that really exciting and something that the media is really going to latch onto. Um, I think we've seen the debates uh, a lot more attention being given to the the battles between Trump, Cruz, and uh, Rubio about all of their um, different insults and calling each other liars and stuff, Uh, whereas Kasich is trying to talk about his record a bit more, and it seems like that's not really getting as much traction.
4: Is there a fatigue factor in social media? I mean, do, do, you've seen this in other... Well, d- I think there's d- also there's, there's d- a silo d- effect
5: in that you can basically curate your feed to only people you agree with. You know, if, I, if you're a super um, liberal student on this campus, you're probably not getting your information from The Blaze, from Breitbart, from, yeah. you know, Glenn Beck. And so you're kind of getting reinforced with the same narratives that you're used to and not hearing new information. And I think there's an interesting uh, intersection here with PC culture in that... that um, Anytime that people have a qualm with a way that you speak or a way that you kind of phrase something, for a while the conservative movement in the country has been saying, oh, that's PC, oh, that's PC. So now I don't think there's a lot of credence in people's minds on the conservative side that when you're saying, oh, Trump's gone too far, there, you, there's, no, there's no respectability politics anymore. When Obama gave the, the uh, bicameral health care speech and a member of Congress stood up and yelled, you lie, and people lapped it up. I find it ironic that now there's a politics of respectability and polite discourse when people have entertained the Benghazi stuff, the, um, the 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 birther stuff. I think that's just kind of the chickens coming home to roost in terms of the the deterioration of um, formal rhetoric within the Republican Party. Uh,
4: that's a rather depressing conclusion, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's something that those of us that are here in the Silicon Valley that are, you know part of this Mm -hmm. technological revolution have to take much more seriously. I mean, because that would be a sad conclusion to think that, well, the future is going to be more of this, um, you know, uh, basically competition to the bottom. I mean, there's got to be a way Mm -hmm. that... This either people get tired of this, or mm-hmm. they, uh, or that we can offer some sort of alternative, or there's a way that we can make social media work in a more positive fashion. Yeah. Because if this is what the future is, you know, I'm glad I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> the, it's the undermining of traditional <laughs> yeah. media. It's it's yeah, the you know, undermining. Well, of a traditional authority too, uh, right? And representative government. I mean, the establishment. Party are, establishment. Uh, yeah. these, these are people that were elected to office, and yet they're they're cowering now uh, in well, the, yeah. force of the face Think of this. Think
5: of all the editorial boards that have endorsed John Kasich. You know, 30 yeah. years ago. Ago, how many voters would have listened right. to that and said wow the new york times editorial board that's very impressive i might take this guy seriously no it's whatever it's the it's the, tr- the the media elites who don't know what's really going on so
4: it's deterioration of a lot of traditional structures yeah i mean the irony is that it's happening in the republican party because in many ways the republican party has uh, you know had the most more orderly primaries if yeah. you think about it almost every single Candidate to date has been come out of the establishment. Whether yeah. you are talking about John McCain or Bob Dole or Republicans know, fall Bush. in line,
5: Democrats want to fall in love. Used yeah. to be the line, but it's looking like it's the absolute opposite of that. That Democrats are falling in line behind the Hillary uh, campaign. Well, yes and no. I mean,
4: you know, and I mean, I Eventually, think let's yeah. turn the light on Bernie Sanders. And mm-hmm. Let's just say that that's a form of populism. Oh, of course it is. And yeah. uh, you know, and and it's idealistic in many ways, as uh, as building the wall and getting Mexico to pay for. It, is the notion that you can have single payer. I mean, if we could have had single payer, I'm sure that uh, Clinton or others would have done it. It was just not feasible, and that's why Obama settled for, uh, you know, Obamacare yeah. and the mandate and working with the insurance companies. But there is, I think, also in, uh, on the left uh, equally uh, susceptibility to this kind of social media uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, argument. It just happens to be fairly polite right now in this particular campaign.
2: So, Jake, you mentioned that Hillary Clinton is managing to beat Bernie Sanders, even though, as you mentioned, Professor Kane, Sanders has employed much of the same strategy as Trump. Do you guys see any possibility at this point that the Republican establishment can stop Trump from winning the nomination, or is he inevitable now?
4: The conventional wisdom today, and I think I agree with it. Conventional wisdom. Yeah, (laughs) is that, um, that the way to stop him is actually not to consolidate the field. And I think that's right. And I actually said that a couple of weeks ago that you're better off because if you if you look at there've yeah. been several polls that said well where would their supporters go and surprisingly they awesome. don't go in just one direction and and Trump would pick up Kasich supporters he would in pick Ohio up, yeah uh, yeah and so the 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 answer seems to be everybody's got to stay in the race uh, and possibly even Carson getting out was a bad idea.
5: But at the same time, I think that. I don't know. How, I mean, like Trump's whole like idea of the the GOP elite handing the election to themselves would be true in that case. That it would be insiders in a dark, smoky room. And I think that how do you? How do you do that without alienating his supporters, without reinforcing his narrative about corruption or anti-democratic values at the highest levels of the party? I think it would be a repeat of 1968 in Chicago at the DNC. And just today, there was a Politico report that said Cleveland, which is hosting the RNC convention, is ordering uh, riot gear and
4: preparing for that possibility, which I think is Well, yes and no. I remember that the riot gear was uh, aimed at people, um, at that time I was the same college age, uh, was college age students. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of the Trump supporters are, uh, I mean, his thuggery seems to be higher thuggery. It doesn't (laughs) seem to be. Yeah, uh, but it's different, but it's chaotic and it's like anti Yeah, well, fair enough, fair enough. And And I take all your points. I think they're exactly right. But I think from the point of view of the party establishment, they would rather lose the election than have the uh, party Mm -hmm. stand for some of the things that Trump has put out there.
3: Yeah, I think that um, at this point, Trump probably has around 65 to 70 percent chance of getting the nomination. Uh, So I think at this point, it seems like it's going to be really hard for any of the other candidates to get to the 1,237 delegates they would need to win outright. So the best way to stop Trump would be to prevent him from getting that number of delegates. And it seems unlikely that any one of the um, non-Trump candidates can actually get up to that number so um, or, or even get a plurality. So at this point, it seems like the best option is to um, have each candidate win different states, prevent Trump from amassing that amount. So Kasich in Ohio, uh, Rubio in Florida, uh, Cruz, in a lot of the Great Plains states. Um, I think that there is a significant chance of a contested convention. Um, I think uh, Nate Silver did an analysis where uh, I think Trump had slightly under 50% of the delegates, and he was on track to have slightly over that amount. So I think it is going to be uh, pretty close. Um, I don't think that the Republican establishment is going to want to, to let Trump have the nomination, even if he has a strong plurality of the delegates um, for like long-term image reasons, what it, the Republican Party is ultimately going to stand for in the long run. However, I do think that... Um, if the establishment takes the nomination away from Trump, if he has a strong plurality, then there would be a significant chance of Trump running third party.
2: Now, if Trump goes into the convention with a plurality and the nomination is handed to someone else, do you not fear that if that someone else, say Rubio or Romney, loses in the general election to Clinton, that all the frustrations and anger against the establishment by Trump supporters and Tea tea Partiers would be validated? So might the party be better off nominating Donald Trump and still probably losing in the general in that case?
5: Well, I think that's absolutely true. And that's why I, like my hypothesis is between Trump and Hillary, that for the Republican Party, for conservatives, Hillary Clinton presidency would be far better. Because if you look at the Obama era, it's been a remarkable string of liberal policy achievements, whether it's health care, financial reform, all these things. But beneath that has been a remarkable electoral achievement for conservatives, whether it's state legislatures, governorships, taking back the House to a tremendous lead, winning the Senate, that the Obama presidency has been excellent for the conservative movement. The nationwide GOP, as in terms of holding office, has been tremendous for them. So I think the Hillary Clinton presidency would, while well, I would like that as a Democrat, in terms of being able to hold office, down ballot for Republicans, it would be good for them. Whereas a Trump presidency you would forever link Donald Trump to the Republican Party and that we'd see um, a, a, an additional kind of Democratic backlash down ballot. And I don't think um, that would happen if you, if, 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 in terms of long-term future if, you, if, if Hillary wins.
4: Yeah, the worst thing you can do for your party is win mm-hmm. for both sides. Yeah. Because once you start governing, you make choices. There's a blowback. And yeah. once you make choices, you disappoint elements in your coalition. And so uh, that is a reason why, when you run the political science equations, there's a you know there's a negative term. While uh, for being in office, you know, yeah. for the third term in a row or fourth term, and then you decline, becomes harder and harder to hold office because mm-hmm. you're alienating more of your own supporters, and the other team can basically unite by not being you. They don't have to agree on things. They can simply say, mm-hmm. "We're not you. Yeah, it's We're not playing defense." And basically, whoever gets elected uh, on the Democratic side, whether it's Sanders or Clinton, their job is the same thing, which is they're they're in a holding action. They're just preventing changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. I mean, in theory, you could have an election. It could be a one-term Democratic president followed by a sweep, followed by the undoing of a lot of the Mm -hmm. bills. uh, Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, the Clean Power Plan, or whether you're talking about uh, DACA, whether you're talking about uh, even healthcare reform, all that stuff could be undone. Yeah. And this is the danger with the Obama strategy of moving forward with executive actions or with mm-hmm. uh, without bipartisan support. Undone. That basically, if if you get a Republican uh, unified government, basically all that stuff can be undone within 180 days.
3: Yeah, I think um, there's definitely um, a strong. Uh, sort of movement, in the, in, the, in the conservative movement there's a strong idea that if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected then it actually wouldn't be that hard to unseat her in 2020 uh, just because um, it would be to be running for a fourth term for the Democrats and uh, at that point she would also be getting much older as well. Um, and uh, back to the point about um, the opposing party during, during um, the other party's presidency, uh, definitely historically Uh, the opposing party does much better in in those uh, senatorial and congressional elections Mm -hmm. uh, when the opposing party holds presidency just because of um, backlash from the public to whatever policies they're Mm -hmm. discontented with.
4: So basically, Trump is the best thing that could happen to the Democratic Party. You get Uh control of the Congress, Mm -hmm. and he would probably not give you 100% of what the Republicans want, he would only do some of those things, and then the rest Mm -hmm. of it would be so embarrassing that it would be bad for the brand for the Republicans.
5: I'm (laughs) curious, though, for you, Ryan, so for 2020, if we're taking this hypothetical where Hillary wins, how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? How do you put the party back together again when you have clearly this intense movement within the party that is just rabidly opposed to Paul Ryan, McConnell, Romney? How do you reunify this interesting coalition of kind of white nationalism, um, big business, libertarianism, evangelicalism. It's always seemed like it's a really big tent to kind of hold together and that the kind of continuation of the Reagan policies was trying to recontinue the Reagan kind of coalition. But there is always kind of tension there and now it's just been exploded. So how do you, how do you put the vase back together?
3: Yeah, so I think um, that is a really challenging question. Um, I actually saw an article um la- uh, sometime last summer about and it was hypothesizing that the reagan coalition doesn't really make sense anymore mm-hmm. um so like with the reagan coalition you had your fiscal conservatives your uh, national security national security hawks and social conservatives mm-hmm. and they all sort of bound together um sort of in the context of the cold war and yeah. being against uh, what the soviet union stood for at that time whereas now that that's over maybe that doesn't make sense anymore where you have all these different coalitions That this huge coalition with different competing factions, like the business conservatives, social conservatives, Mm -hmm. Tea Party, all this different stuff. Um, As far as like putting the coalition back together. Or putting
5: any coalition. How do you have a white nationalist movement in a country that's going to be a majority of minorities very soon?
3: I think that there's a significant chance that after this election that the Republican coalition is going to change. I think especially if there's, there's some issues at the convention with whether or not Trump gets the nomination after getting a plurality of delegates, then Mm -hmm. his supporters might leave. Um, And I think that the interesting thing with Trump is that I think that he's sort of potentially the only person who could leave that movement. I don't know if there's really anyone else who could galvanize this much support for this uh, anti-establishment populist movement. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there.
4: Yeah, and I go back to the argument that known what will unite them is their opposition to Hillary you know mm-hmm. uh to the democrats i mean and I remember that if Trump hadn't run you know either a Cruz or a Rubio you know any of those people had a coalition of conservatism I mean they were putting tea party people together I mean it's just trump found a way to express it that pulled in some people that were on the sidelines before mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't think, I think the hard part would be how do you govern yeah. with all those different factions. There, yeah. I think you really will run into a lot of trouble.
5: And we're, it seems like we're splitting, I mean, there's split on the split on the Republican side into either two or three factions. You have the Trumpians, you have the big business types, and then you also have the, the Tea Party like conservatives. And then on the Democratic side, we're splitting clearly into a center-left, pro-business with controls side and a socialist left. And so it seems like we're resembling a European parliamentary kind of a a typical setup in terms of a broad spectrum of different ideas. I just don't know how sustainable this split is within the GOP, but more broadly within American politics, in a presidential bicameral system. How do you not? How do you deal with parliamentary factions in a non-parliamentary system? That's what really worries me.
3: Yeah, that's just a, uh, mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges. of The two-party system is that you sort of have to assemble these different coalitions of, of different people to be in the same party. Mm-hmm. I think um, when you w- what you were saying about the sanders clinton divide, I do think that um, there seems to be more intra-party hatred among the Republicans. Actually, okay. I sure think does. that there are a lot of Republicans um, in these different camps who will be like. Yeah, I'll never vote for this guy if he gets nomination. I don't like him, even though he's the same party. But I get the sense with the Democrats that even though there is this split among uh, more centrists, more liberal, they all sort of share the same fundamental goals. Yeah. And I think that um, that coalition seems to be a bit more stable at this point.
4: Yeah, but that's because the Democratic Party went through their uh, time and hibernation mm-hmm. and, uh, and their attempts at purity. I mean, uh, <laughs> There was Jean uh, McCarthy, yeah. uh, there was uh, George McGovern, uh, You know, there was Mondale, right. So, I mean, I, I think that what tempers you is loss. And the problem for the Republicans is that um, they didn't get punished for fielding very conservative Tea Party candidates in 2010 because you had this extraordinary economic crisis that people, and then you had TARP, and the stimulus, mm-hmm. which by all objective measures worked, uh, and by the way, TARP started with the Bush administration, Bush yeah. administration officials. Same with the bailouts. Yeah. But you know the the level of knowledge that people have about how the government actually operates, the Obama administration basically got saddled with that. And so in 2010, even though instead of running sort of uh, conventional Republicans, you were running, um, you were running basically Tea Party people, they were getting elected because of the reaction against Obamacare and, and and against TARP and against the bailout of the banks. And what's
5: extra remarkable to your point about the Trump phenomenon is that you would think after the Republicans have lost, what is it, five out of the last six popular votes, yeah. If you if you throw in the first Bush election, that you would think after that much loss that there would be what there was in 2012 with that autopsy report of we need to change to win. We want to win. And then all of a sudden this happens. And that's just, that's what's so remarkable for me, is that they're not falling in line in a more dramatically elaptable way, like the Democrats did with the Democratic Leadership Committee and Clinton and Gore and all these more center-left, tough-on-crime, um, economically centrist guys in the early 90s.
3: Yeah, building on that point, I think that one of the reasons why you haven't seen um, some sort of con- consolidation around a strategy to start winning again is because all these different factions have different theories on why they were losing. An excellent point. So you have um, a lot of the, the business establishment uh, that thinks that it was because of immigration and because of losing with minorities and young voters. Uh, but then you also have folks like Ted Cruz who say that uh, we nominated uh, the more establishment candidate. We nominated uh, McCain. We nominated Romney. They both lost. Uh, we have to build, uh, build turnout among the base. And so there's a whole bunch of different theories. And then Trump says that a lot of people didn't show up to vote. Um, And that's a lot of those voters are building his coalition now. So um, there's really a lot of disagreement about how to move forward from there.
2: You all have referenced this Trump phenomenon. And this question is probably best for you, Professor Kane. But Nate Silver has said, and I'm paraphrasing, that PhD candidates in 2044 will be beginning a lot of their dissertations with the line, quote, with the exception of the 2016 election. We already know that this election so far has defied most political wisdom and norms, but do you believe this year is going to be an exception, or do you think that it might mark the beginning of a new, more lasting change in American politics?
4: Uh, A month ago I would have said it was an exception, but as the more I look at it, the more I think that if we root it into what I talked about a little bit earlier about plebiscitary democracy Mm -hmm. and the role of social media and the the basic change in political culture that has come with this change in technology that I don't think we completely understand. Uh, I actually think there may be something more serious going on and more fundamental. I'm not sure that we completely understand it or know where it's going. Uh, and as I said, Stanford's contributing to it in many ways. Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley is contributing to it in many ways. And we tend to get all excited about the technology and not think about uh, what it is and what it means and how it's changing things. Uh, I also look at the habits that many of the students have not to buy real newspapers. You know, uh, I, I give the students a hard time. I tease them. But it, there's a serious point there that if you're not buying newspapers and you're not supporting real investigative journalism then you're this there is a danger that this kind of blogging journalism doesn't really source things and we're going back to the 19th century where everybody has their yeah. truth which you talked about earlier with the siloing so i think yeah there's something exceptional about Donald Trump there's something exceptional about uh, what he's doing and you can't expect that that's going to happen all the time but You know, what? we saw some earlier signs of this uh, with Sarah Palin and, uh, you know, the the lady from Minnesota, uh, you know, that if you could make a big ruckus, you can raise a lot of money and get a lot of attention. And there's this kind of weird thing that... Even if you lose the election, you can enhance your income, you can become, uh, the ben you know, Carson show, yeah, yeah, the Ben Carson show or, you know, Sarah Palin show. So there's this weird conflation of celebrity status with, uh, you know, political power. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, which I think is possibly transformative. So I don't want to write it off as, yeah, this is one episode, we'll never see it again.
5: There was a tremendous piece on Vox this week called American Authoritarianism. And it was uh, based on some research that had been done that people with what is described as authoritarian mindset, meaning they value order and specifically order that comes from like a specific individual, whether it's in a family or in a political system, that those people more than any other association in terms of correlation are more likely to support Trump. And what kind of triggers this authoritarian kind of mindset is a fear of newness, a fear of change. And so I think one way to read this Trump phenomenon is whether it's immigration, demographic change, the success of the LGBT movement, there's a lot of people that feel threatened by change, the rise of ISIS, San Bernardino terrorism. There's people that are kind of have this mindset of they want to establish order and they want kind of a strong man to do it. And so I think that this, all of these long-term processes of demographic change, of, of terrorism aren't going away, and so I think we're going to see a reinforcement of this authoritarian mindset. And it may not be Donald Trump, but it may be a little Trumpette, a little next politician that rises and kind of echoes at these same tones that hints at people's fears about the futures and fears for themselves, and taps into kind of this seeming desire for authoritarianism within America.
3: I think also a lot of what's driving uh, Trump's rise uh, has to do um, with sort of like the income levels of um, average Americans over the past 15 years, I think. Um, even even though the economy has recovered somewhat, a lot of the gains are going to uh, the top uh, 1% and a lot of uh, families have seen their incomes decline. Uh, there's a, a rise in uh, drug use, especially among uh, working class white America. So I think those trends aren't going away, and mm. they would have to be addressed at some point. Um, and I was going to say something else, but I forgot, so we'll move on. <laughs> All
2: right, then. Well, we're almost coming near the end of our panel, but just as some speculation, if Donald Trump does in fact win the nomination, who does he pick for his running mate?
4: Well, I mean, he could go with Christie, and then you could have a uh, you know authoritarian double. Uh, or he could be smart and go with Ben Carson, who everybody likes as a person, and sort of counter. It would be a flip of the normal circumstance. A normal circumstance has the president being more kind of calm and collected and the vice president being the attack dog. Mm-hmm. But since he's already the attack dog, unless he really changes fundamentally, then he might pick somebody like a Ben Carson uh, who is would Solidify his base with conservatives, but would come across as smoother. Or he could go to Kasich. Uh, the danger there would be that he could potentially lose his uh, his conservative base, but he could try to reach out to somebody who's uh, more moderate. Um, or he could try to counter the gender problem by trying to find uh, somebody. Um, Carly Fiorina, I think, would be probably not the person, but there might be. Um, Nikki it? Haley so, won't do it. Yeah. yeah, Nikki Haley wouldn't do it, but... There by Return respect. of Palin, 2.0. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right, she did endorse him. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know, I think it would be interesting to see whether he, he picks a mirror of himself or whether he recognizes that he needs to soften his image and go to somebody that brings, uh, you know, a, a different perspective to his candidacy.
3: Yeah, I think that... Um, uh, maybe one of his biggest threats in the general election is that a lot of Republican voters uh, stay home and don't vote for him. So I think that um, one strategy for him would be to pick someone who would sort of calm down the establishment a bit. Uh, So maybe Christie, even though the establishment hates him now, um, or someone like Kasich or some other other governor who's pretty popular. Uh, I don't think that there would be that much value in adding someone like a Sarah Palin or Ben Carson, another outsider, because I think he's already got that locked down. He could also aim for someone who will help uh, movement conservatives unite around him, so maybe like a Ted Cruz.
5: Yeah, so I think, uh, to your point about governors, I think the single most likely, in my opinion, is Rick Scott from Florida, um, who is another guy that made a lot of money beforehand and kind of upsets the apple cart. And electorally, Florida's as maybe number the one, one or two most uh, important states, so that would help him there. Or I think it's Donald Trump. He'll surprise us. He'll do something that he's not going to pick a governor. He's, he's, you know, he'll pick Carl Icahn. He'll pick the the head of NASCAR. Just endorsed him. He'll double down on his eccentricity and his outsider image, and he'll pick someone who who we don't even know of. He'll pick T Boone Pickens. He'll pick some oil tycoon we don't even know of. So, I mean, there's really no way of knowing with this guy what he's going to do. So. Or you could
4: go the Berlusconi route and get Miss USA for 2010.
5: I
3: think he did say at one point in an interview uh, that if he ever ran, he would pick Oprah as his vice president well, and that they would know. win easily. So who knows with this guy? Yeah.
2: Well, that's all the time we have. I want to thank all three of you for joining us for the discussion today.
3: Okay. Super. Cool.
1: Thanks so much for getting through the panel. Now, we'd like to end our show tonight on a bit of a somber note. Uh, last week in Kansas, three people were killed by a gunman and 14 were wounded. The gunman himself was shot, but it really brings into question whether or not America has gotten used to this kind of violence and whether or not we we can continue to ignore stories that, that happen almost every month, every week.
2: And, and we really felt like it was important to make this the last story of our show because this episode in Kansas just went out of the news so quickly because more people are concerned in our country about who Kansas tomorrow will vote for in the primary, if it's Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. But 16 people or 17 people were shot uh, just last week, and we still aren't making any progress on solving gun violence in America.
1: We urge you to just consider this and think about it, reflect on it as we will be doing as well. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Please come back next week.